Well, beloved, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, as we continue our study of the book of Romans, and in particular, this marvelous section here in verses 12 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father, as once again we come to this marvelous section of Your Word, we pray, Lord, that its eternal truths would be written upon our hearts and stamped upon our minds. And that we would look to Christ, who is our life and salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Nineteen thirty-six, Adolf Hitler's political power in Germany was increasing at a rapid pace. Surprisingly, very few were seriously concerned about his ascendancy and his military expansion. The First World War had ended less than 20 years earlier, and many were understandably still feeling and experiencing its terrible effects. War fatigue is real. Nevertheless, a small minority were issuing sober warnings about Hitler and his growing consolidation of power. His growing consolidation of power, even as the majority were crying peace, peace, and ignoring the ominous signs that were in front of them. Powerful world leaders did and said very little to address this rising storm that would eventually lead to the Second World War. One leader in Britain, however, was sounding the alarm about Hitler, challenging parliamentary opinion. Of course, that was Winston Churchill. He was proven to be right about Hitler and later was made the wartime prime minister of the coalition government to provide leadership for the ultimate defeat of the Third Reich. It's a letter from 1936 that I want to draw your attention to this morning. 
Actually, one statement in that letter where he wrote this, quote, How few men are strong enough to stand against the prevailing currents of opinion. How few men are strong enough to stand against the prevailing currents of opinion. Dear ones, it's not only a fitting statement for his own context, but for every context and for every generation, not least for our own. While prevailing opinions on everything from ethics to politics to economics to public health are often found to exhibit a kind of mass delusion and hysteria, few voices in the public square are standing against them. And sadly, few in the broader church are standing against them either. The sexual revolution and the social justice CRT revolution have overwhelmed our society and our churches, and relatively few are standing against the prevailing currents of opinion. People are confused. That should be sort of the headline for 2020 to 2023. People are confused, and not just in the culture out there, but within our churches. Cultural accommodation was, of course, a problem in Paul's day as well. It is in part why he wrote the book of Romans, so that the church would have a strong theological foundation amidst the prevailing currents of Greco-Roman beliefs, practices, and opinions, and so that they would stand firm and be faithful gospel witnesses to their neighbors. Dear ones, if the church is unhealthy and the church doesn't know what it believes, then how are we going to be a faithful witness to the world who have no idea what's going on and are utterly confused about reality and have even lost common sense in many respects? Fast forwarding to Romans 12, Paul exhorts his readers to, quote, not be conformed to this what? To this world. To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, Christ Church, don't go with the flow. Don't go with the flow. Don't float downstream with the popular and strong current, which is often delusional, that of public opinion. Don't bow the knee to the prevailing idols and ideologies of our culture. Don't let the moral revolutions generated in this present evil age infiltrate your hearts and your homes and your families and your children and your churches. But rather, as Peter exhorted the churches in Asia Minor, stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in the grace of God and be transformed by the renewal of your minds through the gospel, through the preaching of Christ, through word and sacrament. Look to the crucified and risen Christ who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. Look to his inspired and authoritative word. Look to and abide in the gospel that Good news that while sin and death came through Adam, righteousness 
and life come through Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, that's the whole, that's the whole point, really the overarching point of Romans 5, 12 through 21. That as sin and death came through Adam, righteousness and life come through Jesus Christ. The reason the world looks as it does today is because sin and death come through Adam. And it affects everything and everybody and everything that you see. But in Christ comes that revealed saving righteousness and comes resurrection life spiritually here and physically and spiritually forever in glory. That is good news. That's the good news of the gospel that we revel in and reflect upon and glory in this morning. You may remember that Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans from the city of Corinth. If you think that some cities in America have spiraled out of control and are immoral, Corinth was a hundred times worse than any of them. Paul was writing this letter from Corinth to Rome. Rome was a paragon of, of wickedness and idolatry and sexual deviancy. And he wrote from Corinth to the city of Rome towards the end of his third missionary journey. At the time of his, of his writing, uh, the church of Rome was relatively small and fledgling. Paul's aim, as he wrote this book, was to provide them and to provide us, to provide the wider church throughout the centuries, a manual of sound Christian doctrine inspired by God to provide God's people strong grounding in our faith. And if ever Christians needed strong grounding in their Christian faith, it is now. In the 21st century, we need grounding. Amen? We need strong Christian discipleship. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can stand firm against the wicked ideologies of the world so that we can abide in Christ so that our children will grow up in homes where they are learning about this good news and they are learning about the wicked things that are being taught around the culture so we can say no to that and yes to Christ and to his truth. This was the apostles' aim in fulfillment of the Great Commission, that is, to make mature disciples. Paul says in Colossians 1, that was his aim, that was his goal for which he toiled, to make mature disciples. And so he set out in this letter to carefully explain and apply the gospel. It is a modern kind of myth and lie that we need 31 flavors of churches. We need the big superficial churches where you don't learn any doctrine so that people can be brought in. And then we need the strong teaching churches so that people can mature after they go to those churches for a while. Where is that in the Bible? Where do the apostles give any idea that there need to be this kind of superficial approach to Christianity with smoke machines? And, and I saw yesterday someone, someone sent me a picture of, of confetti machines in the church that were, are going to blast out confetti during the worship service where does it say in the Bible we need that superficial approach, but then we also need these sort of strong, you know, teaching churches? No, we just need faithful churches 
faithful churches that aren't going to look all exactly the same, but are faithfully proclaiming the whole counsel of God and proclaiming Christ from all of Scripture. And so Paul is eager, as he states in chapter 1, verse 15 of Romans, to preach the gospel to the believers who are in Rome. Paul is eager to preach this gospel. He then declares one of the most encouraging and emboldening statements in the Bible in verse 16, serving as a kind of thesis statement for Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Look there with me. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That saving righteousness of God, which we all need, because our righteousness is as filthy rags, is revealed from heaven in Christ Jesus. And that's revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live, not by works, but by faith. We live, we are saved by grace through faith. So amidst all the pressure and even persecution from secular governments, religious leaders, and the general public, and agitators in the burgeoning Christian churches, Paul could boldly declare, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. But dear ones, here's the thing. To not be ashamed of the gospel, you have to first know what the gospel is. And to understand the gospel. This gospel, of course, is what Paul so carefully and so thoroughly is explaining in the book of Romans. If you know Romans, you know the gospel. That's why we're spending like 84 years going through it as a church. Because if you know Romans, you know the gospel. Get to know the book of Romans. Don't even let this sermon series be the only thing that you take in. Read solid commentaries. Listen to other preachers on these, these sermons. And you say, man, I thought Pastor John's sermons were pretty good, but now I see these other ones. I'm going to go start listening to those guys more. The, the gospel of Romans needs to be in our hearts and in our heads. If you know Romans, you know the gospel. That's why we are spending so much time unpacking it. We want to be a gospel-centered church. So after explaining... The universal sinfulness and guilt of all mankind, both Jews and Greeks, from chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, Paul explains the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in chapter 3, verse 20, through chapter 5 and verse 11. He declares that Christ died for sinners, and that through faith in His perfect life, in His atoning death, and in His glorious resurrection, we are saved. We are reconciled to God. We are restored to a right standing with our holy, heavenly Father. We are rescued from hell, not at all because of what we have done or because of our good works, but because of what Christ has done for us, because of His good works on our behalf. John Murray helpfully explains this, quote, Human righteousness is the essence of the religion of this world in contradiction to the gospel of God. Only a God-righteousness can measure up to the desperateness of our need. 
and make the gospel the power of God unto salvation. Dear ones, that is our greatest need, a God-righteousness. And we receive a God-righteousness in Christ because He is the Son of God and He came and He obeyed the law and in Him we receive by faith His very righteousness. It is ours by grace through faith. Paul puts it this way in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, what is Paul doing in verses 12 through 21? Well, last week we began learning that he's pointing the reader back to more than just the preceding 11 verses. No, Paul's focus on uh, death through Adam's sin and life through Christ's saving work builds upon, it builds upon his, his description of the universal depravity of man in chapter 118 through 320 and justification by grace through faith in Christ in chapters, uh, in chapter 321 through chapter 5, verse 11. In other words, Paul is seeking to provide a better understanding for the people of God of humanity's fallen condition in Adam and the believer's new life in Christ. And this morning, I want us to focus primarily on the nature and ruinous effects of the fall in Adam. Understanding these things more fully will deepen our love and devotion to Christ and compel us all the more to keep our eyes on Jesus, to boast in the cross of Christ, to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of mounting pressures of our culture and the lies and the ideologies that are infiltrating uh, our homes and, and churches. The first thing I want us to consider is the devastating fall of humanity in Adam. Look with me again at verses 12 through 14. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, if you are seeing this and you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, that's like technical stuff. As one lady said one time to my wife, Ooh, you believe in that deep religion. This is, this is some serious theology going on uh, in this text, but it's important uh, for the church. Paul was writing to ordinary Christians when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, and so he wants us to understand this. What's going on here? Once again, as we considered last week, God made Adam the federal head or representative of all of humanity. He was created in God's image, and created with original righteousness. He had perfect and unobstructed communion and fellowship with God. The Garden of Eden was paradise, not primarily because Adam and Eve had all that they needed physically, not primarily because they had the best marriage ever, 
right, prior to sin entering in the world, but because they had perfect communion with the triune God. They walked with God, and thus they lived in perfect holiness and happiness in His presence. But then Adam sinned. The federal head and representative of the entire human race fell into sin. And when Adam fell into sin, all humanity fell with him. That's one of the major points in verses 12 through 21. That when Adam fell, we fell with him. Look with me at verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now look at verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18. One trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See a theme here? See a refrain? What does this also teach us? This teaches us about the historicity of Adam. The historicity of Adam. Adam was a real man. This isn't representative of some group of hominids that roamed the earth. God created one man out of the dust, and his name was Adam. And he sinned. And by his disobedience, the many were made sinners. Again, if we are going to understand the doctrine of original sin and its devastating effects, we need to get this. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam fell, we all fell. When sin corrupted Adam's soul, it corrupted all of our souls. He wasn't acting on his own behalf, but for the entire human race. During this probationary period, he would have resisted Satan and not sinned. He would have represented us well, and we'd still be in the garden paradise. But he didn't. He sinned. And death began to reign in all of humanity. When the root of humanity was morally corrupted, so was the entire tree. And thus we all fall short of the glory of God. This means we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. To further elucidate this point, Paul states in verses 13 and 14 that between Adam and Moses, that is, before the law was given on Mount Sinai, sin and death reigned. Even over those who did not have the law, so clearly defined as Adam did in the garden. Yes, even those who did not have the law, as did the Israelites after they received it on Mount Sinai. Despite this, death reigned from Adam to Moses, thus showing that sin was in the world through Adam. That is, Adam, verse 14, who was a type of the one To come. If all of this is true, why does Paul say in verse 13, in an almost contradictory way, that sin is not counted where there is no law? Curious statement. It almost seems to go against the flow of the argument. Well, it doesn't. It's simply a parenthetical remark to reinforce his main point 
that death reigns in humanity through Adam's sin, even when no disobedience to God's written law exists. Even when no disobedience to God's written law exists, because the written law won't come until the law of Moses. Here's the, here's the point that Paul is making. Adam received specific directions about what not to do. You are forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat that. You can have all the other trees, but don't have that one. And to the people of Israel, he gave the law. It was clearly set forth. But in between Adam and Moses, there was blurriness. There was no real understanding of of the law as set forth to Adam and to the people of Israel. It was written on their hearts, but it was broken and, and muddled, as we will consider in just a few minutes. Tom Schreiner explains it this way, quote, Paul's objective was twofold. First, the power of death is so great that it exercises its dominion over people, even if no law exists. Second, violating a commandment revealed by God increases the seriousness of sin in the sense that the sin is now more defiant and rebellious in character. This point accords with the Pauline conception that sin increases and takes on a sharper profile through the law. The law was given to Israel not as an instrument by which to be saved, but an instrument by which to recognize how utterly sinful they were and how short they truly did fall from the glory of God. This interpretation makes sense when we read verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That is, without explicit instructions as Adam had received to not eat the forbidden fruit. Adam, this this type of the one who was to come. So Adam's sin, beloved, was devastating. Not just for himself, but for all of humanity. You know, this kind of thing, again, happens in this life. We considered it last week. When a, when a, when a world leader makes a decision, that decision can be devastating for millions of people. Was there a, a vote in Russia, for instance, to go to war against the Ukraine? No, there was not. Was there a, a vote taking place in the first two world wars about whether or not to, to, to enter into other nations? No, there was not. And they acted on behalf of their people and devastation ensued. So we know and we experience even in this life how there are those who can do things that have a massive effect. Well, in God's covenantal relationship with humanity, Adam was our covenant head. And when he sinned, we sinned. When he fell, we fell. And so this is devastating. And it gives us an understanding about why the world is the way it is and why our hearts are the way that they are. He was not just acting on his own behalf when he gave in to Satan's lies. He was acting as our federal representative. As it states in our larger catechism, question 22, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer, 
the covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. How do you make sense of Romans 5, 12 through 21, unless you embrace this truth? But the question remains, what were the ruinous effects of the fall? We know that Adam fell and that we fell with him. But what are the consequences of that fall? What are the ruinous effects of that fall? Sin has consequences. Well, I've listed eight of them. Eight ruinous effects or consequences that are standard to any reformed confession or solid systematic theology. You'll see them listed in your your notes. I'll go through them quickly. The first one is the loss of original righteousness. Adam was created, as I've mentioned before, with original righteousness. It's not just that he was without sin. It's that he was It's that he possessed positive moral righteousness. His heart and his mind and his will and his affections were all in perfect conformity with God's will. Adam was holy. Adam was innocent. He was a a doer of the word in every way. In the account of the fall in Genesis 3, it states that after they sinned, however, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were open to the fact that they were no longer innocent. And so they wanted to cover themselves up. They were no longer innocent and righteous. That original righteousness was lost. As a result, they felt deep shame and guilt in God's presence. That original perfect righteousness was lost. And that is why in Isaiah, when it says our righteousness is like filthy rags, it's because our righteousness is corrupted by sin. And so when we say, hey, God, look at me. I'm doing all these great things. I'm earning a place with you, right? And God is saying in his word, no, you're not earning a place with me because your good works are bad good works. They're corrupted by sin. You cannot be saved by the works of the law. The law only shows us our need for a God-righteousness, one that makes us right before Him by grace through faith. And so they hid themselves from God, Adam and Eve did. It's what man has been doing in some form ever since. So there's the loss of original righteousness. Secondly, there's the shattering of the imago dei, the image of God. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible states that God made mankind in his own image. Man was created as a reflection of God in holiness and righteousness. Unlike the animals, mankind was created a moral creature with a reasonable soul. I'm sorry, friends, but Scruffy doesn't have a soul. Our dogs and our cats and our parakeets and our pet fish, they don't have souls. They are They are animals. We, however, were made in the image of God. That we would mirror God's holiness and love and creativity and joy and justice to the world around us. But that image, after the fall of mankind, was shattered. It's there, but it's in pieces. In our natural sinful state, we no longer reflect that image as we ought. In Adam, we are not born 
into this world as holy and innocent creatures, perfectly mirroring the image of God. On the contrary, we are born with original sin, not with original righteousness. Thirdly, there is alienation from God. You thought the bad news was bad, it just keeps getting worse. Alienation from God. Sin has alienated humanity from God. Romans 5.10 states that mankind in his natural condition are enemies of God. Enemies of God. We're not in some kind of a neutral position. This past week, a, a brother in Christ who I've met recently, he was telling me about when he came to know the Lord, and he said he was sitting with this this man who was a Christian, and, and he was showing him this diagram, and the bridge diagram, and he was using Romans, and, and he said, where are you? Are you here, or are you here? And he was, uh, he was on drugs, and he was uh, dealing with alcoholism, and, and all of these things, and, and he said, so here's the gospel. Are you here, or are you here? And he said, I think I'm in the middle. And he said, that's not an option. You can't be in the middle. You're either here outside of Christ and still in Adam, or you are here and you are in Christ. And he said, well, if I'm honest, I'm over here. And this man leaned over the table and said, well, you know, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. Christ came to die for sinners. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But, but this is the truth of the matter, that sin has alienated humanity from God. It's why the world looks as it does today. In Ephesians 2, 3, mankind are described as children of wrath. The fiery angel was placed by God at the entrance of the garden after Adam and Eve were expelled to reinforce the fact that fellowship with God was broken. You may not enter back into the garden the fiery angel is there with his sword to make that clear. You cannot enter in again because of your sin. Fourthly, we have the cosmic curse. In Genesis 3, we learn that God cursed the world because of sin. It was an act of divine judgment. The ground would bring forth thorns and thistles, and childbirth would be very painful. Ladies, can I have an amen? <laughs> childbirth becomes painful. Work becomes toilsome with thorns and thistles and struggles. The ground would thereafter shake with earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods. These would become a reality in the world in which we live. Animals would attack humans and creation would exhibit disorder due to sin and the curse. John Murray calls this the cosmic revolution. In Romans 8, 18 through 22, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation waits with eager longing. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself, it groans for the return of Christ and, and the making of all things new. Fifthly, 
We have the introduction of original sin to all of humanity. We've talked about this over and over. It does not necessarily bear uh, repeating. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, all sinned in Adam. And so death spread to all men. Next, we see the total depravity of, of, of mankind, of humanity. Ecclesiastes 9.3 states that the hearts of men are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. This was the clear teaching of Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 3, verse 20, that none are righteous, no, not even one. Total depravity means that my, my mind outside of Christ, my mind is darkened, my will is hardened against God. My affections are tainted and corrupted by sin. My, my, there are noetic effects to the fall. My mind doesn't think about God as, I, as, as it should. My conscience isn't working as it should. And every part of me is depraved. And then there's physical death. In case you thought it couldn't get worse, the effects of sin, there's physical death. Physical death is... An effect of the fall. God said to Adam when he covenanted with him in the garden, if you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will surely, what? Die. Even, very sadly, even babies die. Not as a result of their transgressions to the law of God. But as a result of being sons and daughters of fallen Adam. Physical death is a result of the fall in Adam and not a natural part of life, as some would contest. It's an aspect of God's judgment upon sin. Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Finally, and worst of all in terms of the effects of sin, there is eternal death. There is everlasting death. The second death, so-called. The worst effect of all, those who are in Adam and only united to Adam and who die in Adam, who remain in their sin and unbelief in Adam, will remain separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever and spend eternity in hell, an unspeakable habitation of wrath and judgment and unquenchable fire. Dear friends, this is what sin has done. The fall of mankind is devastating, and its effects are profoundly ruinous. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, no. That's not the end of the story. That's not the final chapter. Why? Because God sent His only Son, His beloved Son, into the world. That's type of of the one to come mentioned earlier, he was the one to come. He's the antitype. He's, he's the fulfillment of that. God sent him into the world to rescue us from sin's devastation and all of its ruinous effects. Here is where we see in Romans 5, 12 and following the glory of the gospel. And the great gospel reversal in Jesus Christ. May I share some good news with you this morning. Jesus has reversed the curse. 
Jesus has reversed the curse. Look with me at Romans 5.12 again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Bad news, bad news, bad news. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. The devastation and ruinous effects of the fall are great, but the gift of God's grace in that one man, Jesus Christ, are greater, and they abound to the many who are in him. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And over and over again in this text, we have this this contrast between, between Adam and those who are in him and Christ and those who are in him. And so we see the great reversal. In Adam, and his fall, we have the loss of original righteousness. In Christ, we receive by grace through faith his righteousness. We lose the original righteousness of Adam, and we receive by grace through faith in Christ his righteousness. So we stand before God justified. The image of God was shattered in Adam, and, 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 and in Christ, by grace through faith, that image of God is now being repaired in us through the work of progressive sanctification. Romans 8, 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Dear ones, that is sanctification, to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of God. The image of God was broken in the, fallen of Ad, in the fall of Adam and our image in him broken. But in Christ, that image is being repaired. Alienation from God in Adam. Reconciliation with God in Christ. In Adam, we are separated from God. In Christ, we are reconciled to him by grace through faith. The cosmic curse Through Adam's sin and our sin in him, there was a curse placed upon the world. But when Christ returns, he will bring the new heavens and the new earth. Creation groans for this. And one day, those groans will cease and we will be swept out of this valley of tears and placed into the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God and all of God's people and the angels forever and ever and ever. That cosmic curse will be reversed at the coming of Christ. The introduction of original sin to all of humanity is contrasted with that saving righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account. The total depravity of humanity is what we have in Adam. But in Christ, we have salvation from the penalty and power of sin. And progressive sanctification goes after every corner and room of our hearts and our lives. While we were totally depraved in Adam, in Christ we are being totally sanctified progressively our whole lives long in every part. 
In Adam, there is physical death. But in Christ, there is what? Resurrection. Life in Christ. And because Christ was raised, we too shall be raised to life. And that's not the only life we will experience. In Adam, there is eternal death. But in Christ, there is eternal life. Life And there's this wonderful summary statement, which we've learned in Sunday school our whole lives long, and perhaps not until now, I've realized that there are six full chapters of gospel before we get to it, where it says in, in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but that free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I quoted it last week. I'll quote it again from Robert Mounts. He puts it this way, quote, Redemption is the story of two men. The first man disobeyed God and led the entire human race in the wrong direction. The second man obeyed God and provides justification for all who will turn to him in faith. No matter how devastating the sin of the first, the redemptive work of the second reverses the consequences of that sin and restores people to the favor of God. Only by grasping the seriousness of this first is one able to appreciate the remarkable magnanimity of the second. Amen. Dear ones, prevailing opinion. Prevailing opinion tells you to doubt God, to disbelieve His Word, to trust in your own heart, to express yourself individualistically, to be autonomous, to cobble together your own way of salvation. That's what the world is telling you. It's giving you new ideologies in a way to make yourself right and true and pure in this culture. But here, in, in the Word of God, in the Gospel, we hear this glorious announcement that while in Adam, death reigned, in Christ, And in his righteousness, life reigns. So may we be found in him, not clinging and clutching to our own good works and our own righteousness, but by his grace, knowing he holds us with an everlasting hold, holding fast to him by grace through faith, abiding in him and this blessed good news that has reversed the curse in Adam so that now we have life and salvation in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the mammoth, colossal truths that are found in this text, of which we will continue to mine, and God willing, in subsequent weeks. We pray, Lord, that we would be set free through these truths. Lord, would you work mightily in us, even as we reflect upon and abide in this gospel 